Hello, it's Vikas Pota, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. So good afternoon. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this session on a world with the right incentives. Can development impact bonds achieve high impact results? I'm Sophie Edwards, a senior reporter with DevEx, which is the media platform for the international development community, and I'm delighted to be moderating this session. So I'm going to let our panelists introduce themselves in a few moments, but just very briefly to set the scene. 11 years to go before the Sustainable Development Goal target, and we're way off track. Everybody knows that, education being no exception. So as part of this has been a growing realization that we need new innovative ways of both raising financing and also deploying it. And within that, there's been a lot of buzz around impact investing or social investment or the myriad of names for it. And within that, there's a subsector, a mechanism known as impact bonds. And they've really been on the increase in recent years. Brookings Institute said that last year there were 134 impact bonds either in the implementation stage or finished. But the majority of those are social impact bonds and still in high-income countries. But there are seven development impact bonds and four in education. So we're joined by a panel here to, uh, of the people that are working on those education development impact bonds and to find out how that's going and what potential they really have. So I'm going to start us off with you. Dorate. Sure. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm representing three organizations. Yellowwoods, which is a global private investment firm that founded the Harambe Youth Employment Accelerator over eight years ago to address the supply-demand mismatch in the entry-level labor market in South Africa. And together, those two organizations have founded Bonds for Jobs, which is the outcomes-based financing platform that was launched last year. So over the past eight years, Harambe has established itself as a labor market change agent, having worked with close to 500 employer partners and transitioned 100,000 young people who were excluded from the economy without tertiary education into their first-time opportunities by deploying <coughs> demand-led training. Harambe's programs are not accredited. They work out of the formal accreditation system of government. And the North Star really is to begin with, the, with where the economic opportunities are and work back to the supply side. So I think most people are familiar with uh, South Africa's high unemployment rate. What we've learned is that there are three main causes of this problem. The one is a state failure through poor education. So young people leave the education system without the right employability and skills that are required by the world of work. There's a market failure in that employers um, use exclusionary prox proxies of measuring a young person's potential. And there's also a poverty factor in that it's very expensive to find a job. What this has informed is that any employment intervention in South Africa will have triple financing. The government will always be a payer. The private sector will always be a payer. And there's still a gap which is filled by donors. The crisis and opportunity is that South Africa spends more than enough money on education and skilling every year. 
There's about 200 billion rands, 14 billion US dollars spent annually by both government and the private sector on skilling every year. So it's not a money problem, it's the way the money is deployed, that's the challenge and the opportunity. Is that the money is spent on programs that are not market-led, they're expensive, they're lengthy. So we've got a lot of trained young people in South Africa who are not employable. So that's where we saw the opportunity to launch our impact bond. But our impact bond is focused solely on accelerating what we're calling alternative pathways to skilling. So a good example is where a traditional pathway to digital skills would be a computer science degree at a university. The alternative pathway for those skills are a coding bootcamp, which is quicker, it's cheaper, and it's market relevant. So we launched, as I said last year, impact bonds are um, very complex and they involve multiple stakeholders. We were successful in launching what we call an MVP, but robust enough for scale. Um, and I think, you know, the key thing about the model is, you know, what we say our North Star is that we're market driven. So training organizations don't get access to working capital before they've identified and secured an opportunity for the young person in the labor market. So before they've got an employer on the other end saying, I will employ this young person when they've graduated from your training program, they don't get access to the money. Um, the challenges so far have been that there aren't a lot of ready training organizations that are market driven. People are very wedded to their own programs but when you start saying to them, you're not getting a cent of money until you find the opportunity at the end, then the number of training organizations shrinks from thousands to a handful. Um, the approach to scale and to achieve system, systemic impact on this is that government has been a partner from day one. They are one of the outcomes funders. And the model is really to shift the institutional spending of government on skilling. And that is the scale um, approach. Yeah. Okay, great, thank you. And um, let's go to Dan now, who's been part of the um, putting together of a number of these. Maybe we could just go a little bit backwards just to explain a little bit of the structure, just in case there's anyone in the audience that doesn't really know how they work. Sure. Um, so, uh, by way of introduction, my name is Dan Daver, and I work with the UBS Optimist Foundation as a program director on our social finance team. Um, now, uh, UBS is the world's largest wealth manager. Um, around half of the world's billionaires bank uh, with us. And the uh, UBS Optimist Foundation is part of the bank's offering to, uh, to our clients, wherein we provide philanthropy advisory to, to bank clients, uh, along with an execution platform that helps them to manage their strategic philanthropy and maximize their impact. Why am I mentioning this? Um, I would like to, in my opening remarks, also speak to the point um, of who is it that is interested in getting involved in development impact bonds? Before I do that, I will um, just quickly outline the structure of an impact bond. So an impact bond is actually not a bond. The word bond is a misnomer. Um, it is really a series of flow-down contracts wherein uh, a group of funders, known as outcome funders, agree to pay for a program only if predetermined um, targets are met. 
Um, so in the case of education, those targets are typically learning outcomes. Um, now, to run the program, there is a role of a risk investor. The risk investor provides upfront capital to implementing organizations, NGOs, uh, schools, etc., to run the education program. And if learning outcomes are achieved, the risk investor will be paid back by the outcome funder and can possibly earn their capital along with a return. Um, that return is not necessarily a commercial risk-adjusted return. It's, it, it can be non-risk-adjusted, uh, but it is something over and above the investment that they made. Now, in order to ma make sure that the outcomes that are um, uh, that are uh, that are linked to the payment are um, are collected by uh, an independent authority, the uh, outcome funder actually contracts an evaluation agency. So there is uh, an external evaluator involved in development impact bonds, and there is also the role of a performance manager. Um, in Harambi's case, that uh, Harambi um, uh, plays that role um, with the Quality Education India DIP that is supported by British Asian Trust as outcome funders and UBS as risk investors. Um, that role is played uh, by, by Dahlberg. Um, so it, it, it is a group of, it's just really a series of contracts between this group of players that come together to solve a social issue and uh, that, that, that want, uh, will, and for which the payment will only be made if outcomes are achieved. Uh, speaking to this, the, who the risk investor is, um, from the UBS Optimus Foundation point of view, we found that in our interactions with uh, the clients of UBS, uh, over 90% of the world's wealthiest individuals are philanthropically active, but less than 20% are actually satisfied with their philanthropy. They don't know where their money always goes. They're not really convinced that any real outcomes have been achieved by their giving. And so uh, there is a new kind of philanthropist that is emerging that is interested in a more entrepreneurial approach to their, uh, to their giving. And they want to see um, real tangible outcomes um, from their <coughs> philanthropic activity. Um, 67% uh, of millennials are interested in investing uh, in, uh, in entities that reflect their own social and environmental values. 88% of women want to invest in entities that have a positive social impact. We're seeing this kind of new entrepreneurial philanthropist that really wants to get engaged uh, in programs where they can maximize impact but also possibly recover uh, their capital, sometimes to be even pulled back into future social programs. And <coughs> this is a group uh, of individuals that uh, UBS Optimist Foundation works with to pool their risk investment that, and provide the upfront working capital within a development impact bond framework to the implementing organization so that they can run the programs. And if they achieve learning gains, then we, we, we can recover our capital along with a risk-adjusted return. Um, so this is, it's, it's quite a, a new trend that we're seeing in the space, and it's potential to actually tap into uh, a new pot of funding, because uh, this kind of philanthropist or investor is actually willing to provide some of their private capital, so not necessarily what has been already allocated as philanthropic money, but kind of reach beyond that and even allocate some of their private capital to uh, programs that are structured like this. Thank you. Um, so, Safina, turning to you now, you were part of the first education dib which uh, finished last year, Educate Girls in India. It'd be great to just hear a little bit how that's structured and what you learned from it. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I started Educate Girls 11 years ago and uh, we grew very quickly. We work in critical gender gap districts which have the highest number of out-of-school girls 
And we grew from a 50 school model to 500 to 5,000. And it's about, we were about at 8,000 schools. What I really started to worry about saying, you know, you can keep scaling, but are you scaling quality? Uh, and are you scaling outcomes for that last girl? Or are you simply scaling an activity and a program? So the basis of the first dip was around that, saying, can you, if you put money against a result, right, each dollar buys a particular result, can you build an organization that has delivery to results in its DNA? Um, and so that's the sort of genesis by which we, we started. So we were paid on two outcomes. One was enrollment of out-of-school girls, and uh, which we found by going door-to-door -door in our program villages, knocked on every single door to find uh, all girls who were out of school. And then every time a third-party evaluator verified that, yes, this girl is back in school, would trigger a payment. And the second was on learning. And in learning, there were control schools, which were regular government schools, and our schools where we were providing our intervention, and then measuring. So if my children moved up two units of learning in a regular government school, one unit, we would get paid for that balance one unit. Uh, so very rigorously set up as an RCT, uh, uh, as a gold standard. And these were the two main outcomes. Um, Children's Investment Fund Foundation was our outcome payer. They were purchasing the impact. UBS Optimus Foundation was our investor. Um, we had Instiglio as um, the project uh, manager. And we had ID Insight as our third party evaluator. The evaluation was very rigorous. Uh, they checked 70% of the children in program and control and treatment and control school every single year. So the results were at 99% uh, accuracy. And what we found was that at the end, so in terms of finding and bringing out of school girls, we were able to enroll 92% of all girls um, back into school in three years. Um, and again, interestingly, the, the younger girls, we were able to bring back in in the first year, and then older, because they are more at risk of child marriage, of you know pressures and... Uh, was at, a, at second and third years. In terms of learning, even more interesting, year one, we achieved about 25% of our learning target. Year two, we reached 50% of our learning target. And by year three, we actually reached 160% of our learning target, which was at 0.31 standard deviations, which is equal to, at minimum, an additional year of schooling for an average student. And again, we're working with rural, remote, tribal areas. And so adding an extra year of learning for a tribal child is, is massive. And the reason I'm walking you through this is to understand what it actually means in terms of a child on the ground, a girl who would have been at risk of child marriage, of trafficking, of you know, uh, early childbirth, was actually in school and staying in school. And all of this uh, third party evaluated. So very, very big focus on outcomes. Um, and what it meant for our teams was, um, just in terms of some of the big broad lessons learned, was that the focus, so that it was like a very clear goalpost, right? You knew exactly. We had 768 out of school girls. And the team, the field team, has a very clear uh, view on what is expected of them, right? Which helps them run with it. So it creates a, a big ownership. It helps you really look at data. So they, what they realized was that 80% of the out-of-school girls were in 40% of the villages. So you move manpower around. You kind of do much more intensive implementation in one area and a lighter touch in other areas. So it makes you very data-focused. All your decisions are being made, keeping the outcomes and uh, very data-driven decision-making at the field level, not at a, at a central level. It also means that as an organization, you automatically decentralize. 
Uh, and I think this is very, very, very <coughs> important for service organizations working at scale, is that you're not prescribing what they should be doing sitting in a head office or sitting overseas. Um, the best solutions come closest to the ground, um, right? And I think that's a big learning from the Dave in terms of how social impact really needs to be um, kind of delivered. So I think definitely, um, and again, I think uh, the fact that the other big learning for me, and I think it is generally for the sector, what we need to take away from it, is to think outcomes or results that we want to see for poor children. I mean, a lot of our children are stunted, mal you know, malnourished. These are very, very difficult populations to work in that you can't parachute in and parachute out. You can't fund a one-year program. Right? You have to fund multi-year, you have to fund tied to a particular result that you want to see, and you have to fund flexible. You can't do activity-based. And I think these are the big, big lessons to take away from outcomes-based structures, is give people flexibility, um, give them multi-year money so they can course correct and they can improve their programming so that we can have much better results for our children. Okay, brilliant. We're gonna come back to you with lots of questions, but let's turn to Richard now, um, who I guess inspired or part of the learnings that were seen in the Educate Girls Dib has now launched, well, is part of the process to launch a new, had launched a new one last year, uh, bigger and different. So tell us sort of how it's different and, and just a bit about it. Okay, so I'm Richard Hawkes. I'm the chief executive of an organization called the British Asian Trust. We're one of Prince Charles's charities. Uh, that works with the South Asian diaspora, uh, mainly in the UK, but, but also more globally, uh, with things like innovation, private sector, social finance, at the heart of what we do as, as an organisation. Um, I've personally been quite involved in social investment uh, and developing things like social investment bonds in the UK for uh, nearly 10 years. I, I, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a more fundamental issue which we're all trying to address here, which so Sophie referred to at the start, uh, which is that if we don't change the way that things are currently working, we're never going to achieve the SDGs. Um, the, the bottom line is at the moment that there is, there is more money going into development than ever before. There's more official development assistance, there's more philanthropy, and there are more NGOs. And yet there's still nearly a billion people uh, living in extreme poverty. In, in South Asia, 45% of the population of South Asia are living on less than $2.5 a day. Um, current estimates are that to achieve the SDGs by 2030, there is a $2.5 trillion a year funding gap. So if things don't change, we are just never going to achieve the SDGs. Now, on the one hand, Yes, we need more money, uh, and so, uh, and, and, but, but equally, what we can't do is what uh, NGOs, and I'm part of the NGO sector, traditionally do, which is just say, well, the only solution is more money. What we've got to accept and face up to is that we also need to make the money that is currently in the system more effective and more efficient. There is a lot of inefficiency, there is a lot of ineffectiveness, there is a lot of waste. In, in the system as it is at the moment. Uh, donors, uh, donors fund inputs and activities. Uh, if you look at education, donors traditionally will put their funding into building schools or numbers of teacher training programs or equipment and things like that. And what that does is that drives um, NGOs and delivery organizations on the ground 
to deliver against what the donors want. So do delivery organizations are paid to do the inputs and activities that the donors want them to do. So you have a whole range of positive intentions uh, where people are hoping there will be great outcomes and results. But the problem with positive intentions is that that's what they are, positive intentions. Uh, and positive intentions often lead to negative results, not just to, to no results. So there needs to be a fundamental change. And the kinds of things that uh, my colleagues on the panel have been alluding to in terms of changing a focus to focus on results, uh, changing the focus to make, make sure that local organisations know what it is they're trying to achieve. So with learning, what are we trying to achieve with learning? What are the outputs that we're trying to achieve? Then changing donor behaviour so that donors only fund the outputs and the results as opposed to funding activities that might not have any results whatsoever. So we've got to change this. We've got to change the way that donors work. We've got to change the way that delivery organisations work. And development impact bonds are one of the ways that you can try to change, bring about this change. So they do provide mechanisms for bringing in new money. Uh, they definitely provide an opportunity to influence the way that things happen on the ground. So Safina just summarised there, and she'll go into more detail, I'm sure, about the changes that Educate Girls has gone through to be able to focus on the results that it's trying to achieve. Uh, and there are hundreds and thousands of other NGOs in India and across the world that can learn from that. We've also got to change donor behaviour and get donors to start looking at uh, how they fund results and have confidence in the local organisations on the ground, which you both said, to then deliver those results, rather than global donors sitting in ivory towers in Europe and North America thinking that they can tell organisations on the ground what to do. Uh, and development impact bonds offer an opportunity to challenge all of that and to do things in a fundamentally different way. What, what we have done in partnership with UBS is built on the learnings from the, the tremendous pioneering development impact bond that Safina led and said, okay, what are the learnings from this? Uh, how can we build on that? Uh, how can we take those learnings and looking at, and looking at then take that to, uh, to another level? Uh, which is always the brilliant thing when you're, you're, you're pioneering with something like, like Safina has done. And what, together with UBS, what we've been able to do is structure an $11 million development impact bond focused on education. And we've brought together a whole range of different funders that include the British government's Department for International Development, it includes Tata Trust, the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation, the Ellison Foundation, Comic Relief, Lakshmi Mittal, British Telecom. So you've got a range of funders uh, that, are, that are, uh, have come around a table uh, from the private sector, the not-for-profit sector, the government sector, uh, from India, from uh, Europe, from North America. So a combination of donors. And as Donna explained, all of those donors, what they're saying is, yes, we'll put in $11 million, but we're only going to pay if it is successful. And if it's not successful, they don't have to pay anything. So that donor money is de-risked. They don't have to pay for anything if it doesn't work. Because Dunn and her colleagues at UBS are putting up the upfront capital that is required to make the work happen. And if it doesn't work, Dunn loses all her money. Uh, if it does work, the donors will pay and UBS will get their money back. So UBS are taking the risk. The donors are not taking any risk at all. Uh, they only pay for success. And as Safina explained in their model, there is an independent evaluator who will assess the outcomes, and if the outcomes are achieved, then the donors will pay. Can I ask you a question here, Richard, then? So 
Safina's model, they were measuring two things, access and also uh, learning gains. What about in your model? So, uh, again, th things when, when, when the div that Safina worked on started, one of the biggest challenges was getting people into school, was getting girls into school. Uh, in India now, and I, I'm aware who, who I'm on the panel with, but so correct me if I'm wrong, but it's estimated that 99% of primary school children are actually starting school. But the huge challenge is, what are they learning? The, the MDGs were more about access, the SDGs are more about learning. So the div that we're working on is only focused on learning. So the outcomes that we're looking at measuring are increased attainment levels in numeracy and literacy for primary age children. And so it's totally focused on learning outcomes. So one of the, one of the criticisms of outcome-based payment models is that it doesn't really control for perverse incentives. Uh, you know, if an operator is, is being rewarded for learning gains, then they may have an incentive to exclude children who are going to perform poorly. Obviously, that was controlled for in the Educate Girls Dib through the access uh, indicator, but how, how are you mitigating against that in yours? Okay, so there's the, the, the consortium that has been involved in this includes us and UBS um, and the Michael and Susan Dow Foundation, and that's been crucial right from the start, uh, together with the learnings from, from Safina. Uh, UBS are responsible for the performance management of those NGOs. So I think, Dun, it, it, you, you could probably summarise the measures that we put in place to mitigate that. Yeah. So the question of perverse incentives has come up quite frequently. And um, actually, the, the, the way the DIB is, um, is, um, is constructed, so the... Uh, um, um, ha does take that into consideration. Uh, when it comes to you know, the question of gaming, will service providers actually choose um, schools that are already performing better? Uh, the, the way to mit mitigate that risk, and um, particularly in education, but also more generally, is to, uh, is to measure distance traveled. So regardless of the starting point, what was the progress made um, among students? And when you're actually measuring that delta or that change, um, uh, the, the question of perverse incentives um, is, is, is to some extent um, mitigated. So we're not measuring absolute learning levels, and therefore if you choose students that are already up there, that's really not going to, um, going to help you. You need to make progress with all the students regardless of their um, starting level. Um, and in a way, in the case of education, it actually is an incentive to choose children that are performing poorly because you can see the quickest delta, the quickest change in learning with children who are actually lower in attainment levels. So it's actually an incentive to choose the poorest schools, children who aren't learning so well. I'm sure we'll get some questions on this from the audience uh, in a minute. Um, but let's just talk um, a little bit about um, the investors in your case. Uh, so how are you selling this to, to your UBS clients? And, and what's the reaction? What are their sort of concerns and questions? So um, how are we selling it? And actually, um, as I mentioned earlier, there is an increasing demand. So it's almost that um, philanthropists, investors, clients are, are coming to us and saying, you know, isn't there a different way for us to, to give money? As new generations are, as sort of next gen is taking over family wealth, they're asking critical questions. They don't want to be writing checks anymore and, and saying, you know, here you go, forget, forget about 
the results of, of, of this, um, this funding. And so we're actually seeing the demand from, um, from investors um, uh, for, for kind of more results-based um, financing. And, um, and, and, and certainly the, the potential to, to recover capital um, uh, is, is very interesting uh, to our clients. So, mm -hmm. so the angle of you know, where funding programs where uh, outcomes are being clearly measured, clearly defined, and payments are only made if outcomes are measured, uh, outcomes are achieved, and, the, and, and if outcomes are achieved, you actually have the, uh, the possibility of recovering your capital along with some kind of return. That so is that is really what 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 makes clients um, so it's a bit interested. Of an e it's an easy sell then. Uh, it, well, nothing is an easy sell, and uh, but uh, there is there is a lot of um, interest. Can I just? I, I th oh, wait, I th actually, sorry. Can we ask Lorato had something to add? Sure. So in our context, we've got three types of investors. We've got the UBS type high net worth individuals, but who require their capital to be preserved. So we need a guarantor on the other side for that. Then we've got soft money in the form of empowerment trusts and foundations who take the first loss. And they're very catalytic because they unlock the commercial funding. So pension funds, asset managers looking for commercial returns are happy to invest in this type of structure if you've got the first loss layer in place. And that's the most scalable form of capital so a big part of our demonstration effect was to demonstrate that these models can work for commercial funders. Yeah, and you're also unique in that on the buyer side, you've actually got government involved, which... From day one, yeah. Yeah, which has not been done in a, in a sort of middle-income, low-income country setting yet. Correct. Any, any sort of thoughts on how, how you managed to do that? Um, as I said, Harambi had been operational for six years when we started the impact bond and had worked with the government um, before with the Ministry of Finance and Gauteng Province, which is the biggest province um, in South Africa. And both those two parts of government are more innovative than other parts of government and were quite keen to catalyze this model as a way to demonstrate to the Ministry of Education how some of that institutional statutory money and skilling can be shifted towards this sort of money. So I think we identified parts of government that are easier to work with, are more innovative, as a way to demonstrate to the bigger, <laughs> scalable yeah. parts of government. Yeah. Um, Safina, I wanted to ask you this as well. I mean, we've been hearing that it's, it can be done, but it's complicated. I think that's what you, you started off saying, Narato. Um, why not just do simpler contracts with just you know a regular outpace-based mm -hmm. aid contract? And in your case, you know, I understand you you haven't done another dip. You're not really interested in doing another dip. So tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, first of all, I'll step back a little bit on the perverse incentive question. And I think the bigger thing to focus on is is not necessarily the exact evaluation framework that is set up because uh, each will be different and will be bespoke. I think the biggest piece to step back on is just like activity-based funding is prescribing what you should do on a, in a village in rural India, which is what we're saying step back from, is with all of these transactions is are you expecting a private party with money 
to decide what is the outcome to be delivered for that tribal child, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we need to step back from. So social impact bonds, and like you said, the involvement of government becomes key. So either they are tied to the sustainable development goals, so that you don't have all these transactions where private money is deciding what is it that looks like. So I think that's the root of, of it. And then, so instead of mitigating downstream, we just need to make sure that these transactions are actually, it's, the government deciding or it's like, you know, the sustainable development goals and those indicators which are being decided as the outcomes to be delivered and the measurement framework, right? So, and then you can kind of say that we didn't, we're not going to measure per percentage point improvement of a school because that may mean that you will pull out students who are performing and then, you know, you can do an aggregate framework. But I think it kind of even goes at the design stage, not necessarily, I mean, beyond the design stage. Um, so I think well, that's one way to kind of think about it. The second is that I think dibs in the positive side of it is dibs are great R&D tool, right? They're great. They're like a pressure cooker that you have to deliver in and that teaches you so much about performance, right? Because activity-based funding doesn't teach you about performance. So for Educate Girls, we were actually able to learn so much as how do you, you know, you're not happy with 10% improvement or 20% improvement. Let's get to that 90% and solve that problem, right? But the data-driven decision-making and all of that, to give you an example of why we're not doing another dib, is now we have insight, and we have data from over four million households, just from a door-to-door -door survey. We're using advanced analytics. 5% of villages in India have 40% of the out-of-school girls. And we have a model now with evidence that can actually bring 92% of them back into school. And Richard is right. I mean, these are last 5% of the villages, right? Everywhere else, you don't have an access issue. But these 5% of the villages is still over 4 million out-of-school girls. So it's that precision targeting, and that's come to us because we've learned so much about performance. Mm -hmm. But instead of going into another transaction, I want to take those learnings and actually solve 40% of the problem of out-of-school girls in India through this very, very sharp performance-based um, delivery. And for that, we will need $100 million. Now that comes to your question, is saying, how can that $100 million be structured so that it's most enabling to solving that problem? Yes? And so then the nature of that money, it could be in the shape of a bond. It could be in the shape of multilateral funding. It could be in the shape of philanthropic funding. It could be in the shape of retail funding. But the nature of that money needs to be multi-year, tied to that result, flexible. Right? Mm -hmm. So. That's what we really need in the sector, is not just about having new tools and stuff, but also changing the nature of current funding. Yeah. Right? And that is what will have the biggest multiply and ripple effect, is if the grant money today changed from activity-based to more outcomes-based, you would actually be able to accelerate to those 40% you know, um, of the out-of-school girls very, very, very rapidly and ensure that you would deliver and close mm -hmm. that problem. But do you need a dip to do that, or could you just have outcome-minded funders? So I think it's outcome-minded funders. So again, as a service provider, I just got the money as a grant, right? Yeah. So the, the financial instrument sat on top of me. Mm -hmm. You know, UBS Optimus gave us a three-year grant. So for me, all money looks like a grant, right. right? Whether it came through the bond or whatever, it's the superstructure above that. So as far as I'm concerned, I just need all money to be of that nature. Mm. Okay, I think we should go to the question, actually. Um, David. Yeah, uh, David, as you can imagine, um, just a couple of observations. I mean, I think it's very striking that uh, the person who's probably been most involved in the largest 
development in that model in the field of education is saying she doesn't want another one. Um, I think that's very revealing. I think there's a number of reasons for that. I like the idea that the, it's good to be focused on outcomes, but let's not ignore inputs and processes uh, and the more complex field. There is a real danger, I think, uh, when we look at very narrow outcomes of literacy and numeracy, that you have a whole set of distorting uh, uh, outcomes. Uh, you get people focused very narrowly on teaching the test. You might get great results of literacy and numeracy, but you destroy other aspects of the learning process, an education system that should be about fulfilling the sort of frames the full personality of children. The worry would be that one of the tendencies within a narrowly framed development impact bond would be that you encourage behaviour which actually distorts the wider aims of education. And that really does need to be taken seriously. It's very striking, I think, this morning that we heard uh, from the Barclay Foundation that there's very compelling evidence now that if you focus on quality teachers and professional teachers, that's the biggest determinant of improving outcomes. So we, can't, we don't have to go through all of this elaborate process. The second critical thing for me is that this is really playing at the very margins of what is really needed. A few million dollars here and there of impact investment is not really where the change may, will, will come, and it won't come from donors and from aid. It will come from domestic resource mobilization. As the Education Commission itself says, 97% of the financing for education needs to come from the domestic financing. The big challenge is how to get governments to be looking at how to uh, create more effective investments in the field of education and, and playing around with bits of aid, however one is framed, is really uh, uh, very insignificant in the big scheme of things. Uh, Richard and Safina, perhaps you could... Sure, I'd, I'd like to um, take some of those pieces. So I think, I agree with you, we need, you know, we need quality teachers and stuff, but I think a lot of the times just having the right content and the right capacity, that's what it translates into, saying we will do all this training and capacity building. Sometimes, and a lot of the times actually, we see it doesn't actually close the execution gap. The other piece is, just from my own experience of three years on the ground working in some of the most difficult schools, we learned very, very quickly that just teaching, even a regular session plan, right? If you made it into a game, if it was an activity, if it was fun, children learned a lot faster, right? So in some ways, it's not completely divorced from saying if you narrow it down, that you're going to actually lose and it's going to become some of this you know, sort of straight-jacketed approach. We actually saw the opposite, is when you give people the flexibility and teachers the flexibility, the kind of session plans, the kind of activities that they will make will be much, much, much more child-centric. Uh, they may do things which are much more child-centric in the way that we realized that outcomes weren't moving for children who had low attendance. So our community workers actually went home. Every time a kid missed you know, school, they went home to make sure that they caught up so that they wouldn't have those lags. And that's the kind of stuff that I think the outcomes focused kind of helps you generate. Um, we iterated the content 20 times in one year, right, to get to that exact thing, because we realized that kids don't learn subtraction with, you know, uh, because they didn't learn place value. So you kind of help bring people, keep bringing them back to what's really missing. And in village school, in tribal schools, a lot of the times it becomes about just, you know, going from chapter one to chapter two to chapter three, but the outcomes focus allows you to stay with the child and make it much more child-centric. So in some ways, I, 
my ground experience didn't play to that. It actually played to the fact that it made you much more individual, personalized, child-centric approach to actually be able to get to those outcomes. Uh, I mean, a couple of things. I, so the fact that Educate Girls is not involved in the next dip for me is an example of what a great success mm. the pilot was. Um, and why would they be involved? Uh, it, it achieved a, f a fantastic purpose for them, uh, which Safina has said has now put them in a position where they understand as an organisation how to collect the data and the evidence to focus on the results that they're trying to achieve. Uh, there are thousands and thousands of NGOs in India that aren't doing that, uh, that are driven by poor donor behaviour from international NGOs and funders uh, that focus on uh, e activities and inputs and not on results. And so the fact that it's driven that change in Educate Girls is a great example for other organisations to then get into that space. Um, I'd also agree, of course, a couple of dibs here and there, 130 dibs here and there, isn't going to answer everything by itself. What it is going to do is have the transformative impact on other donors. So if you look at the dib that we're working on, we've got uh, agreements in place with governments of Gujarat and Delhi uh, who are looking at the work that we're doing over the next four years because there are three different delivery organisations on the ground and they all work in different ways. So maybe quality teachers is the thing that leads to the best outcomes, but maybe it isn't. Maybe there are other things as well. Maybe nutrition is. Uh, maybe there are other things. But nobody knows unless they collect the data and the evidence to prove it. And unfortunately, NGOs just don't do that. Uh, and what this is forcing, and so in our model, is forcing data and evidence to be collected that can then inform future decisions. So we're going to be able to sit down with the governments of Gujarat and Delhi in four years' time and say, we've now got the evidence that shows which interventions lead to the best results at scale, hoping then that, the, that there's the potential that those governments then come on board and fund in a very different way to achieve much better results. Yeah. I, I'd just like to add that I think Richard is right in the fact that we wouldn't be here and we wouldn't have these insights if we hadn't actually done the dip. And what are the fastest pathways to impact? We wouldn't necessarily have that ability for data analytics. We wouldn't have a lot of those performance management pieces. And that's exactly what we learned directly from, from the transaction. And I'll just add, I'll just add that dibs are basically one tool within a wider outcomes-based financing narrative. And they're not always necessary, and they're not always uh, the most appropriate tool. So there are certain circumstances where they work really well, but not every kind of education programming needs to be within a dib uh, construct. And particularly where outcomes are almost guaranteed, dibs are not necessary. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, at the back. about structuring of dibs because as you said it's not always the most appropriate tool because in effect it's basically just changing who's paying either the outcomes payer or um, uh, sort of somebody who's financing the own uh, NGO work on the ground so in economic terms you know it's important to look at whether sort of the time spent by uh, the employees of the donors, you know, for consultants who help structure it, is worth sort of uh, the um, is worth the time because you know the, the NGO gets paid either way. Um, and also, I think in the context of the previous question, I think sort of the prize there is can we get governments to be the outcome payers? Mm -hmm. yeah. And 
you know, are we actually de-risking through this process something that the governments could do? Is there, isn't, is there interest from governments? And then, you know, what information do they need from us, the donor community, to be convinced that this is a good way for them to pay for uh, results? Okay, let's yeah. take two more questions as well. We'll, we'll do a round. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, so thanks for, for, for that presentation. Uh, Malia Khan, I'm with the Malala Fund. Um, so my question is around the emphasis on evidence uh, and results um, and the ways that evidence is generated and what constitutes evidence. Um, clearly, for some, for some issues, uh, you can have evidence of a certain type. I was a bit concerned about how much emphasis was being put around um, RCTs and a particular type of evidence that can be collected. Um, even the biggest proponents of RCTs will say that it's only appropriate for a very, very narrow type of issue that you might want to be addressing. And so is there, you know, just a caution around uh, and a question of is there an openness of what constitutes evidence? Um, what would be appropriate evidence for which issue and what would be convincing to people? I think particularly in the new type of philanthropy, there has been a narrative around the gold standard and that automatically has been equated to RCTs and that's of, of a little bit of concern. Okay, and a question, if you just pass the microphone forward to Emma. Thank you. Thanks. Um, hi, Dan. I'd love to hear a little bit more about where you think they're really appropriate and where they're not so appropriate. And also, what's happening to, to the market generally? Um, well, what, what's happening within UBS? You know, how much this is growing, um, how the returns are for you and your clients, um, and what's happening in the market more broadly? OK, brilliant. Uh, three great questions. Let's start with, is it worth it? all this structuring, if you're just sort of moving the money around? Um, you want to answer that? So I actually don't think they're that complicated to structure. Um, I think in a, in a traditional philanthropy structure, you have somebody, someone might pay, they'll often pay an international NGO that then pays local NGOs. Uh, in, in, a, in a dib, you still have that person paying. They just pay at the end rather than at the start uh, because somebody else is putting the capital up front to enable it to happen. So you're not shifting who's funding, you're shifting who's taking the risk. Uh, and so it's the risk for the donors is, is de-risked. The, the funders are only going to pay for success. Uh, one of the huge advantages we've had is the fact that Safina had already done it. And so we were able to take the model that, that Safina had worked on, sit with her for hours and say, what would you have done differently? How did you do this? Uh, how do we learn from that? Uh, and do it faster than we would have done if Safina hadn't done it. Uh, think, and, and we're now, and just on that, we're, you, you know, all of the work that we've done, we're happy to share with absolutely anybody. And so a time will come, with anything new, it, goes, it takes a little bit longer. A time will come when these are, you, you know, it's much easier to do it. There's a sort of set way of doing it. You can just take them off the table and, uh, and, and people will, you, you know, the model is there now. I think the next one that we're developing uh, will be doing a lot faster than, than this one. But I, I think part of the criticism, perhaps to go back to the, the first div with Educate Girls, was that you've got SIF um, and UBS, and you probably could have just switched them around, and whoever was, you know, the, the buyer could have become the investor, and vice versa. So, are you really breaking a mould there when you've yeah, got two you, donors you, that were already up for it? Yeah. yeah. So, it, it, you know, the, in it, I know there are lots of members of the British Asian diaspora who are um, interested in being outcomes funders in future. Uh, products and also interested in being risk investors. There are lots of foundations now that have dual 
parts of their organisations. Some will do recyclable finance and invest in things, and, and another part will, will give grants. So I think that's absolutely fine. It's just in each particular model, because what this is doing... bringing new investors hmm. to the table, then, because they're already interested. No, you, are, you, can, you can bring new people in, because there are increasingly there are investors that want a blended return on their, on, uh, on their investments. And so whereas 20 years ago investors just wanted a financial return, then they wanted to know that their, that their investments weren't causing any damage. Now increasingly investors want to know that they're getting a, a blended return. So are they getting a financial return and a social return? Uh, what that can do, and the UBS experience will, will demonstrate, you, you know, they're, pro they're providing their investors with a proposition to get involved in something that they might not have done before. And then, and the, within our dip, the money that is in that UBS are putting in, the 6% return is then being recycled into other development initiatives. And so that's more money that's going in. We've attracted outcomes funders uh, that are now part of this development impact bond that wouldn't have put their money into education in India if it hadn't been the attraction uh, of doing this kind of development impact bond. You're also freeing up money because if you're making, uh, if you're saying that 100% of donor money is going on results, I, I have no idea what the percentage is in traditional philanthropy, but it's certainly nowhere near 100. Uh, so you're freeing up that, that money to be able to provide more money for okay. the field overall. Well, let's ask Dan here, because she works with these investors and, and so, to answer the question about the market. And, yeah, so I, I'll actually um, speak to both questions on cost effectiveness um, as well as sort of what's next um, at, at UBS Optimist Foundation. So um, I think certainly with some of the early dips, um, a lot of the um, high transaction costs uh, will result in, in sort of po positive externalities, public goods, as, as Richard mentioned, um, you know, the rate card that we're working on on the quality education in India dip uh, would uh, would serve as um, as a sort of uh, a framework that 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 hopefully governments can use in deciding uh, which service providers, which models um, are most cost effective when they come in as an outcome funder. Um, and the uh, idea, really, um, I think that now is is emerging is to really pool these kinds of instruments into uh, into wider outcomes funds. And and that's a, a piece that we've been working on increasingly within UBS Optimist Foundation is is using that architecture that has been created, the frameworks, the structure, um, for uh, to, to plug in <coughs> multiple uh, SIBs and DIBs. And so, and, and in using that same sort of predetermined set of contracts um, to, to really influence uh, multiple uh, outcomes across geographies and across sectors. So really catalyzing and, 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 and growing uh, from the experience of, of the early dibs. Um, in terms of government interest, I think there was a question there, is, are, are governments in developing countries interested? In South Africa, we're certainly seeing that. Um, and, and that's another, uh, and there was a point about um, domestic financing. And, uh, and, and we really feel that with development impact bonds, it, it is possible to demonstrate the efficacy of, of a model that can then be taken to government as a compelling argument for government to then de-risk public service de delivery and come in as an outcome um, a funder. And, and, and those are some of the conversations that are, that are currently ongoing. So, um, so the, the dibs really can serve to, uh, to get governments excited and, and engaged in this kind of outcomes-based financing. And there have been commitments um, that the governments have made uh, in India as well. There is a growing sort of budget allocation towards outcomes-based financing, which is very new. 
Narate? Just a quick perspective on the question of is it worth it? I think there's two things. The one is it takes a lot for a politician to do something differently to the tried and tested century-long processes that you know all their predecessors have been doing. And to de-risk that shift, I think, is what sibs and dibs can do. Is when you're proposing that a government do something that is innovative, you know, not tried and tested, they could lose their job for it. De-risking that shift in the process is one. The second is when we talk about new money and the criticism that dibs don't bring in new money, I think they bring in new money in a different form is that in development finance, we have governments having to be the risk takers and always subsidizing and cushioning commercial investment. What a SIP does for me is, for the first time in development finance, we've got a model where commercial investors take the risk from government. So I think for those two reasons, it's definitely worth it where it is appropriate. Uh, and there was also a question around evidence and RCTs. Oh, are they the right tool? Of, you know, maybe, maybe they've lost their shine. Can anybody speak to that? Or different ways of doing evidence? Well, I think in terms of RCTs, and that's a standard criticism uh, and, and, and sort of generally uh, quite quite difficult to determine when an RCT is necessary and, and when not. Um, I think also with development impact bonds in, in early stages and with, with early impact bonds, uh, probably a more experimental, quasi-experimental uh, evaluation framework is necessary, particularly as we're also building out things like rate cards, what is the actual price to achieve a certain outcome. Um, hopefully, as we, as we progress, we will not require um, um, you know, an RCT type of gold standard um, uh, um, assessment. We might actually be able to uh, manage with um, an outcome verification process, which is uh, more low touch. Uh, but I think in, in early, early dibs, it's, it, it is, it's important. And it's really important to make that compelling argument to, to government, et cetera, um, to, to really come in and, and fund these kinds of programs. And, uh, just to add, very, in, in the dib that we're working on the, it, now, 80% um, of the total outcomes funding pot is going to the local delivery organizations. And so by, because we've been able to scale it up to $11 million, it means that the ratios can be more effective because of, um, so because of scale, because of economies of scale. And so, and, and we said right from the start, we wanted to make sure that 80% goes to the local delivery organizations, which is definitely uh, comparable favorably to most philanthropic yeah. uh, structures. Yeah, so that's opposed to going on management legal costs. And yeah, eight, yeah. Okay, and I think, um, I should also just mention, I think ours was the only one that is structured as an RCT. I think all the other dibs and sibs uh, are mainly verifying uh, administrative data and, and stuff. And ours was structured as an RCT very much because it was the first in education and the first in the developing world. It was the first one getting out of US, UK context. And people were like, nobody will even believe because we're such a 
data sort of challenge at the village level or at the ground level for us. So I think for that reason as well, it was saying because it's a proof of concept, because it's being done at the first time in India, in a you know rural tribal area, that it was structured only for that. But I don't think it necessarily needs to be going uh, forward. So it was more an anomaly. It's not necessarily okay. the case with all dibs and sales. Um, we've got just over five minutes, so I think time for a couple more questions. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to answer, I'm Dr. Duttenberg-Doyle from Right for Education, so we do education in Africa. And um, I would like to talk to about the question he asked. I run schools in Ghana, and it was impossible to get kids to school, very difficult. And the government very quickly decided that you pay instead of tax, you pay school fees. And I can tell you the attendance rate particularly for the girls is 100%. Because once I paid for their education, I might as well send them. And I think um, the research that you're doing right now, which is relevant, has been done somewhere else already. And um, maybe we do the same research two or three times or ten times over in each country again and again and again, when really we know the method works and it's a policy question. Okay. Any other questions? Yeah. Hi. Um, have you seen a shift in outcome um, implementers that they are now collecting more data just to see that they are actually creating the change that they're hoping for? Or is that only if the funder is requiring it? So can I take that? So I think all of the data that my field staff collects now is data that they need. So it's not prescribed by the donor. So to give you an example of just like bringing out of school girls into school, so I found that one of my field teams was collecting a lot of data on, they do village meetings, neighborhood meetings, individual counseling. So at their own level, they were collecting data to see what kind of does a village meeting, which means it takes two to three days, you have to gather a large number of people, does that shift enrollment faster? or doing a neighborhood meeting, or doing individual counseling. So they're actually thinking of data through that. And what they realize, and it's very interesting, uh, that if you do a movie screening or something, awareness goes up, and people will say the right things, but enrollment doesn't go up. Right, but it's usually like, uh, so people will say like, yes, it's very important to educate girls and all the rest of it, so all the campaigns that you do and rallies and all the rest of it, but what really shifted actual outcome was individual counseling and neighborhood meetings um, and stuff. So that kind of data is nobody prescribed that data and they just kind of wanted to see what's, where should I spend my time uh, and what should I really kind of focus on. I think maybe actually I might use moderator's prerogative here and ask a final question which possibly we should have started with I'm now thinking. Um, but what is specifically useful or not uh, about dibs for education as a sector because you know in the 134 that I mentioned that that are around the world hardly any are in education so is it a suited tool to education and in what sort of conditions or or is it not um, anyone who has thoughts on that Narati? certainly from a post school education and training perspective there is one simple goal is to get young people economically productive mm. so I think dibs um, are really helpful in focusing and removing the noise about what is the purpose of post-school education and training, and it is just to get young people into jobs. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think there, there are definitely some sectors that dibs don't necessarily lend themselves to. Mm. Um, and so, and I, th I think where, where you are able to have uh, measurable outcomes, then, you know, so in areas like jobs, skilling, 
uh, health, education, things like that, it, you, you know, they're more appropriate. Uh, you still, you know, picking up on that point that was raised earlier, uh, you know, it's been really important in ADIB that it's not just a blunt um, measurement of numeracy and literacy. There are, there are a whole range of other softer outcomes that, that the, the donors aren't going to pay against that are still important to ensure there's that wider quality of education approach. Um, I think there are areas such as uh, trying to transform, uh, trying to bring about social change in a mental health scenario or anti-trafficking or some areas where perhaps uh, uh, you, you know, outcomes-based payments aren't necessarily the right way of trying to do things. But certainly I, th I would argue that in areas like education, health, jobs, skilling, uh, they're definitely appropriate. Um, I think a, a big lesson also in education specifically is I think for governments to take away saying there's one thing about policy and you know but you don't make one policy and you carpet bomb it across the universe there is merit in sort of precision targeting and dynamic programming to actually you know make sure that you can so sort of precision policy making or targeted policy making is also another tool that perhaps can be looked at given the results and how uh, dibs can really help in terms of specifically the education sector. Uh, I think so. I mean, I agree. And I think that in uh, the space of education, they are particularly relevant. Um, I think sometimes with, with clients, we have this, con this sort of conversation about, you know, input tracking and activity tracking and, uh, you know, wanting to build a school and assuming that education will be the result of that. I think uh, in in the space of education, learning outcomes are not necessarily always guaranteed, and therefore uh, provide you know <coughs> dibs that allow service providers, implementing organizations, complete flexibility to innovate and figure out how best to get those girls into school, how best to make sure that they're they are learning. Um, you know, is it is it to focus on on teacher or in that specific context is is the challenge actually something completely different? Um, and it gives them that flexibility to to really operate as they need to to achieve uh, the sort of north star of, of learning outcomes I think in education it's particularly um, relevant brilliant well that's bang on time we've just run out of time so thank you very very much to the panel I thought that was a really interesting uh, discussion thanks for your questions